0: Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they disregarded the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, <coughs> Excuse me, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, he who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites responded to the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord... Who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. But I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I asked, Did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by means of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Then Isaiah boldly or clearly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I reveal myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now for the benefit of those of you this morning who are visitors, I would like to say again that our custom here on Sunday morning is to systematically teach through a text of scripture. And uh, for the past uh, months, we've been going through Paul's epistle to the church in Rome, the book we call the Book of Romans. Paul's concern in the first eight chapters of this book is to establish the fact that, that God loves us, he likes us, he cares about us. He himself took the initiative to reach out to us, and our response it is to respond to that love by simply accepting what he has done. There's nothing we can add to that salvation. It's it's a gift. It's gratis. We accept what God has done for us. Now in chapter 9, Paul raises the question of uh, Israel. How does Israel fit into God's scheme to bring salvation to the world? Because for the 2,000 years prior to Paul's time, Israel... Uh, the people of Israel were the missionaries whose, whose job it was, whose function it was to preach the gospel to the nations. God wanted the world to know that he loved them, and Israel was the picked instrument, the instrument, the chosen instrument, the elect people through whom God made proclamation of that, of that message. But it appears from the first uh, eight chapters of Romans that uh, Israel no longer has a special place because anyone can come to Christ, and as Paul points out, there is now a new Israel, the church of God, the church has constituted the missionary force. The church is composed of both Jew and Gentiles. So there's a new nation, new nation of missionaries. Well, then the question comes up, what, what about Israel? They've been moved off center stage and the church has been moved center stage. What can we say about Israel? Can they still come to Christ? Of course they can. They come on the same basis that, uh, that Gentiles come. Any Jew comes to Christ not by keeping the law, but by believing the good news that God has already done everything for us that needs to be done. We simply have to accept it. Now, that's Paul's concern in chapter 9. He wants us to know, or pardon, pardon me, in chapter 10, he wants us to know that Jews come on the same basis. And therefore, the proclamation of the gospel to Jews is precisely the same proclamation as made to Gentiles. It doesn't make any difference whether we're talking to Jews or Gentiles. The message is always the same and the significance of this chapter for us is that it teaches us how to evangelize how to share our faith how to give our faith away not only to Jews but to Gentiles because as i say the principles are the same now th- this is what uh, what uh, would be called in seminary practical theology i when i went to seminary we had to take a course our junior year called practical uh, theology and and the, only, uh, uh, the only conclusion I could come to is that theology must be terribly impractical to have to teach a course in practical theology. It's not. Uh, theology is simply the study of God, and God is the most practical individual that, uh, that ever lived. This is truth to be lived. But uh, sometimes uh, we need to be taught how to, how to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, and that's exactly what Paul does in chapter 10. He's talking about how we make the gospel accessible. How do we reach the hearts of people? How do we sh- how do we give our, uh, away our faith to others? Now, first, Paul says we have to love people. We have to care about them. We have to be concerned about them. They have to be important to us. That's what he means when he says, "Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they they may be saved." In other words, we have to befriend people. I've often said that uh, that ministry is composed of two elements, befriending people and imparting truth. That, that's all it is. There's nothing difficult about it. You, you just make friends out of people. And you tell them what you know. You don't even have to know very much. You, you, you just tell them what, whatever you know. You befriend them, and you impart truth. And, and And that's where we have to begin. We have to love people and... And in order to love people, you have to be with people, which means we have to mingle more. That's the whole point of the incarnation. God came to earth and he mingled with us. He was with us. He was Emmanuel. And and we need to be with non-Christians. It's a good good question to ask yourself periodically. Uh, How many non-Christian friends, unchurched friends, do I have? Unfortunately, we're, we're inclined to spend too much time with, with our Christian friends because it's safe there. We're like rabbits, you know. We can pop out of our, out of our hole and run through the world, a lot of frightening things out there, and, and then we can pop into another hole and we're safe and secure. We kind of run from Bible study to, to Bible study, and, and we don't really know what it's like to be out there in the world with people. But you can't love people and you can't care about people if you aren't with people when god wanted to impart truth to us he became one of us and if we want to impart truth to our to our friends we have to be one with them it concerns me some of our uh, some of our standoffish techniques you know uh, bible billboards and uh, turner burn t-shirts and and uh, Shave signs that preach the gospel and and, and those sorts of things they, they don't communicate i think they alienate uh, I don't have any problem with tracks. I think uh, these little booklets that we hand out can be very effective. But, uh, but sometimes that becomes our only means of evangelism. We just plop a track down, and we felt that we've done our part. And there's, there's been no impartation of love and concern. I was with a couple last uh, last Sunday. We were having lunch with them, and and they they laid a track down on the plate. Or rather, they handed it to the waitress, but but it was very obvious to me that uh, that that behind that simple act there was a lot of love. They really had cared for that woman, and they knew her from the past, had talked to her, and, and they were communicating love, not just trying to get a get a message across. You see, we have to be with people. We have to we have to love people. We can't mechanize and trivialize the gospel by. Getting our patter down pat, and learning how to smile the right way, and and get all the techniques down. We we really have to know people. We have to understand them, and we have to we have to care about them. And we shouldn't argue with them ever, ever. Paul uh, says in Second Timothy two, the servant of God must not be argumentative, but be gentle with all men, patient, meek. That is. Uh, Non-defensive. Uh, when people oppose you, he says, if perhaps God may grant them release from the one who has imprisoned them to do his will. Here's a little peek behind the scenes. They've, they've really been victimized by Satan. And, and, if, and if we're to release them at all, it will be through truth that's that's administered in, in love. We're gentle. We're kind. We're loving to people. A uh, number of years ago, when I was living in California, I had an opportunity to hear a debate between our uh, former Methodist bishop, uh, California Methodist bishop, Bishop Pike, and a, a well-known uh, Christian apology. And the man just devastated Dr. Pike, just absolutely devastated him. I don't know if you ever, ever, ever saw Dr. Pike. He's, he's now dead, but he looked like somebody's grandfather, a very kind gentleman, gentleman and a gentleman. And uh, this man just tore him to shreds. It was an open debate. There were a number of uh, students there in the audience, and and I thought after it was all over, this is a classic example of of winning a battle and losing the war. Because if you'd ask anybody coming out of that audience who won the debate, clearly they would they would have said the evangelical Christian won the debate. He made Dr. Pike look very bad. But if you want to ask who won the war, they would say Dr. Pike because he came across as as, as much more the gentleman, much more kindly, much more thoughtful. Paul says, don't argue with people. We don't have to pin them wriggling against the wall. We don't have to treat them roughly. We don't have to run roughshod over over those that don't agree with us. What Paul tells us is that we need to be concerned about them. As Joe Aldridge says, people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. You have to care about people. Our Lord cared enough to come to earth and be with us. We have to care enough... To be with non-Christians and love them as as they are and impart the truth to them. There's no lasting influence without sustained loving contact. The second thing Paul says is is that we need to pray for people. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Prayer is nothing more or less than, than the highest expression of our dependence upon God. What Paul means by prayer is that he's he's praying that God will open the hearts of his his unbelieving Israelite friends so that they will they'll see the gospel, they'll hear it, they'll understand it for what it is. Uh, in Second Corinthians four, Paul is explaining his own conversion, and he says it was as though God created light again—the same God who created light in the beginning, created light in my heart so I could see the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. Paul, as you know, was on his way to Damascus with letters giving him authority to persecute Christians, clapped him in irons, put him in prison off their heads. That 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 was his that was his goal, and along the way he was arrested by the risen Lord, who appeared to him in blinding light and and Paul says that's that's archetypical. That's that's the way God has to open minds. The God of this world, he says, has blinded the minds of those that are unbelieving so that they cannot see the face of Christ. And, and the same God who said let there be light in the beginning has to, has to cause, you know, he pulls the chain, the light comes on, and be, oh, I see. You've probably had the experience I have of talking to someone and explaining the gospel over and over and over again to them. They just can't see it. That's what Paul calls that satanic blinding. The God of this world has blinded their minds. And then the light goes on and they see. They say, aha, I see. And that's where prayer comes in. Now what that does for us, I think, is deliver us from the feeling that somehow we have to convince people. That it's the power of our persuasion that opens people's minds. We don't have to argue with people. That helps you to relax if you know it all depends upon God. My job is to impart whatever truth I have. Maybe, I just may have a modicum of truth. may not be very much, but I impart that truth, and it's God's part to open their eyes so they can see it. That sets me free to relax. That sets me free to say, I don't know, if they ask me a question, I don't know. Happens all the time. People say, what about this? I, I don't know. I never thought about that. I'll have, to, I'll have to go check that one out. But that's all right. I don't have to have all the answers. Because it's up to God to open their eyes to see. Have you ever been in a Bible study where uh, uh, someone, you know, here's a cluster of Christians in a Bible study and a non-Christian shows up. And you're not aware they're a non-Christian until they open their mouth and they come right off the wall with something. You're talking about the way Christians love each other and, and this uh, the, the, this this brother says, what? Well, what do you mean Christians love each other? What, what about what about the Crusades? And uh, you will see an amazing transformation on the part of the Christians. Have you ever, have you ever seen Bella Lugosi turn into Wolfman? The fangs start to grow, and and the Christians come right off their seat. You know, and they go right for the jugular vein, and the poor person wanders out wondering what in the world happened. And instead of of just responding by saying. Whoa. That's a good question. That's a real good question. You know, By what uh, authority does uh, Richard the Lionhearted go out and lop the heads of Saracens off in the name of Christ? Do it all to the glory of God. How about some of the rest of you? What do you think? You know, that's a very good question. Let's think that through. And just relax and let God take care of the situation. You've got to love them. And we got to depend upon God to open their eyes to see. I have a favorite story. I told it to you some years ago. Some of you will recall it. But I just love to tell it because the spirit of the man comes through. This this is the way we ought to do evangelism. I had a friend, Matt Prince, who was invited over to a a friend's house, a Christian friend's house, to evangelize his friend, which is the sort of thing you should never do. I mean, you know, you should evangelize your friend, but but, uh, this man invited Matt over to evangelize. Had dinner, and the fellow knew he'd been set up, and and he was very hostile toward Christians. And all night he, he kept, he kept, he kept jo- uh, goading Matt. He'd say, I, "You know, I, I think, I think Christianity has done more harm than any other set of beliefs in the history of, of humanity." And Matt would say, "Well, that, that's one point of view. That's interesting. Tell me, what, what, what do you do for a living?" And uh, they chatted for a while about his uh, his job. And then he said. Uh, and and Christians are down on women Paul was was a misogynist and he hated women and so much harm done in the name of uh, uh, of Christianity to women and Matt says, could be uh tell me wh- what do you like to do for fun do you like to fish hunt what do you what do you do and they chatted about that for a while anyway, anyway the night went on like this and and as they were leaving uh, this man turned to Matt and he said one more thing about Christians and Matt put his arm around him he said whoa wait a minute wait a minute he said all All evening, you've been trying to talk to me about God. He said, What is it? Are you some kind of religious nut or something? (laughs) And the man laughed. And uh, to make a long story short, a couple of weeks afterward, they were able to get together for lunch, and Matt was able to share the gospel with him, and ultimately this man came to Christ. It's that sort of thing I'm talking about, being able to roll the punches and just love people and entrust the whole thing to God. Evangelism is his business. He delights to use us as his mouthpiece, but it doesn't depend upon us. Our job is to make friends of people and tell them what we know and put, put the rest of the, of the whole process into God's hands. It the pressure off of us. The third thing that, w- that we need to uh, think about is uh, the way non-Christians are. We need to know people. Verse 2, for I can testify about them. That they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. He's he's referring to his uh, fellow Israelites, but you know it's also true of of those of us that are Gentiles, even non Christians, have some knowledge of God, some some nodding acquaintance with Him, and and some desire for holiness and righteousness. That's what Paul calls the law; it's written in the heart. I, I rarely run into anyone who who is truly atheistic. Most people have some hunger for spiritual things. In fact, that's my favorite question, one of my favorite questions. When, when I, I want to open a conversation up with, with a non-Christian, to ask me, are you interested in spiritual things? 99 times out of 100, they are. They want to talk about these things. As, as the preacher, the philosopher puts it in Ecclesiastes, God has written an eternity in, in our hearts. There's this longing for something more. And we have to know that it's there. People have some sense of zeal for, some, some, uh, some zeal for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they disregarded the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. The average person that you meet is trying to get to God on his own. He thinks that when he stands before God, there's a a scale, and all of his good deeds will be put on one side, and his evil deeds on another, and he's toted up his his good deeds, and there, you know, he he feels that they'll probably outweigh the evil deeds, and he'll make it in. Or else, he thinks that God is a a sort of Santa Claus who will say, "Well, you've been a naughty boy, but it's all right." They, They really don't understand the concept of God's righteousness. His utter holiness and our complete inability to measure up. Uh, the, the average person thinks that they have to be righteous. They don't understand that, that our Lord wants to impart righteousness. He wants to give it. Christ, he says, is the end of the law for righteousness' sake. Now, there's a, a great deal of theology packed into that one verse. And I'm not going to take time to try to unpack it, but... We could go on and on talking about this one, one, one text. He is the end of the law in the sense that our Lord kept the law perfectly. He never once disobeyed any tenet of the law. He is the end of the law in the sense that he consummates the law. All of Israel's worship f- finds its fulfillment in Christ. And he is the end of the law in the sense that the law drives us to Christ. And I think that's the way Paul is using the. The phrase here, we try and we try and we try to be good and we can't be good. And we find that what God wants is absolute goodness. And and then we find ourselves standing before Christ. He's the answer. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. God takes our unrighteousness, puts it on Christ. He takes Christ's righteousness, imparts it to us so that that, that we have sonship, we're adopted into God's family, and we belong to Him on the basis of Christ's death, His sacrifice for us, and not anything that, that we've done. G.K. Chesterton said that our despair comes not from doing evil, but from doing good. There's a time, he says, where we're just wear out trying to do God, good, and that's the way most people in the world are. They're so desperately tired, so sick and tired of trying to be good fathers, trying to be good mothers, trying to, to obey certain laws, trying to measure up to the demands they place upon themselves, much less the demands of society and they realize they can't. What good news it is to hear that they don't have to measure up Christ measured up for us and, and, and we gain our righteousness from him. You see. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness sake. So we need to know people. we need to know where they are right? You can't accept people at face value. Most, most non-Christians seem to be cruising along. They have the world by the tail. Everything seems to be going their way. And when you dig way down deep inside, you discover there's a real loneliness, a real unhappiness, near despair very often because they can't be the kind of people that they want to be. They know what, what they ought to be. They can't pull it off. They can't measure up. We need to understand that. So that when we tell them the good news, we understand what good news it really is. Now, the fourth thing uh, that Paul describes in this passage is the gospel itself. We need to know what the gospel is. Verse 5. Moses describes in this way, The righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the word of faith we are proclaiming. Now Paul's point is this. Uh, Moses knew what the gospel was. He knew what the good news was. He knew that the good news was that you can't keep the law and you don't have to keep the law to be righteous. Uh, somewhere we have picked up this notion that in the Old Testament, Moses taught that you you become righteous by keeping the law. Here's a list of ten commandments. You keep these ten commandments and God will love you and accept you. If you don't, he will reject you. But in the New Testament, Jesus came... And he 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 preached the good news, which is you know you just forget all this stuff about the law and Moses and all these all this rigmarole and all these rules. All you have to do is believe. In fact, is, Moses had it, just as straight as the apostle Paul or our Lord Jesus. The Point he's making when he when he when he quotes this passage in Deuteronomy is that if you're going to keep the law as a means of salvation, you have to keep all of it, every jot and tittle every teeny weeny bit of the law you have to keep the whole thing that's terrifying you you you, you can't eat oofragis and most of us don't even know what an ossifrage is what if i've eaten an ossifrage, for goodness sake i've lost it you know all these you know these funny little laws in 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 the old testament don't clean the corners of your fields well you've Farmers have probably done that. You've harvested your crops right out to the edge of the field, so you've broken the law. Don't rob eggs from uh, nests, bird's eggs. from well, You've probably done that sometime in your life when you were a kid. And, and, and what Moses says, if you're going to get to God by doing good, you have to be absolutely good. You have to do it. And Moses knew you couldn't do that. He knew that. That's why he said, no, 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 no. That's not how you get to God. The way you get to God is through your mouth and your heart. It's just as close close as your mouth and your heart. And Paul says, that's the gospel I've been preaching all along. You just have to believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead. Why do you have to believe that? Well, you have to accept the fact that there's something unique about our Lord's death. A lot of people died in history. A lot of people died on crosses. There was at one point in, in history when, when the Roman Empire ran out of, of wood for. I keep forgetting and wandering away from this mic. I'm sorry. Uh, there, there was one point in history when they actually ran out of wood for crosses. So many people were crucified. They crucified thousands of people. Well, what was it that was unique about our Lord's death? He rose. He didn't stay in that grave. Which was God's way of saying that he accepted the sacrifice that our Lord had made for our sins. So we have to believe that Jesus rose from, rose from the dead. Now You see what Paul is saying? You don't have to go up to heaven and, and, and get the Lord and bring him down. God's already done that. You don't have to go down into the grave and bring the Lord up. God's already done that. God raised Jesus from the dead. What do you have to do? You have to believe in your heart that he rose from the dead. And you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's simple. That's simple. That's the fundamental creed in the New Testament. Now, our creeds have ballooned over the years because the church has had to face heresies and they've had to articulate the the gospel, uh, you know, define it a little more carefully. But the but the essential creed is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we don't care around here what you believe about eschatology. You can be an all-mill, a pre-mill, a post-trib, a, a pan-mill, you can be anything you want to eschatologically, because that doesn't matter. We have charismatics that attend. I'm not charismatic, but I'm not anti charismatic because it doesn't matter in terms of our salvation. The important thing is that Jesus Christ is Lord, and anybody who says that and believes it in their heart is a Christian. It's what it takes to be a Christian. I said, Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you. For dying on the cross for my sins, thank you. That you rose again for my justification. Thank you. I believe that. You're Lord in my life. I accept that fact. That's all you have to believe. Now, that's not my opinion. That's what the Apostle Paul says. That if you say Jesus Christ is Lord and you mean it, you're subject to the Lordship of Christ, you're counting on Him for your salvation, then you're a Christian. And when we articulate the gospel, that's all we have to say to people. For goodness sake, let's don't talk about our church. Let's don't confuse them with the issue of baptism or which version of the Bible to use. Those issues don't matter. What we need to point out to people is that Jesus rose for their justification and they need to make him their Lord. And and we need to say that loud and clear. That's what Paul means. And when he says this is the word of faith, we're proclaiming. And the scripture says, if you believe in him, you'll not be put to shame. Isaiah said that uh, 700 years before Paul said it. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're you're a Jew or whether you're a non-Jew. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And then he quotes Joel. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. See another 8th century prophet. So this is nothing new. This is the gospel that's embedded in, in the Old Testament. It was the gospel that Moses preached. It's the gospel that Paul preached. It's the gospel that, that we ought to preach. Verse 14. Here's Paul's fifth point. We have to love people. We have to depend upon the Lord to open their eyes so they can see. We need to know people. We need to know the gospel. And finally, we need to proclaim the gospel. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Well, you can't call on Christ if you don't believe in him. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? Well, you can't believe in him if you've never heard about him. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now, when you think of a preacher, you think of someone like me, or you think of someone with a turnaround collar, someone who's, who's you know, he's, he, he gets paid to preach the gospel. Now, y'all are good for nothing. I get paid to be good, see? <clears throat> but Paul's not talking about clergymen or preachers, it's a word for proclamation. All of you are intended to be preachers. If you've heard the gospel and believed it, and Christ is dwelling in your heart, If He's your Lord, then you are a preacher. You can proclaim it. Uh, How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Judy Johnstone did this. I just laughed out loud when I came in this morning and saw it. I love it. Look at those ugly feet. That's exactly what feet look like. Have you ever looked at your feet? They are ugly. Worse looking things in our body. Isaiah said, How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace. Paul says the same thing. You look at those feet, and if those feet get you moving to preach the gospel to somebody else, you got beautiful feet. <laughs> you may have corns on both feet, and your toenails may turn up, you know, and they're ugly as sin, but but if those feet are used to carry you around Proclaiming the gospel of Christ, your feet are beautiful. Even if you don't have feet, even if you're in a wheelchair or you're on crutches, your your feet are still beautiful if you're if you're if they're being used to preach the gospel. Say, somebody's got to tell them. Who's going to tell them out there? God could have uh, uh, written it in the sky. Uh, but, you see, he, he, he has condescended, in, in a very real sense, to preach the gospel through us. We get to be the spokesman. We get to share it with others. And uh, when we do, when we do, people can hear it, and they can believe it, and they can call upon the name of Christ. Now, uh, we've got to to bring this thing to a close, but I want to look at just the last section, verses 16 through 21, because the point that Paul is making there is that some will not respond, and we need to know why. Not all the Israelites responded to the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? In other words, uh, as I said last week, Israel's scandal is that the very message they were called upon to proclaim is the message that they didn't believe. Who has believed Our message. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I asked, didn't they hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their their words to the ends of the world. Paul picks an unusual uh, passage to document this notion that they've heard. It's from Psalm 19. You'll recognize the quotation. It begins, the the, the heavens declare the glory of God in the firmament. That is the the, uh, space, the flattened out space that we see when we look up. Uh, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork night and night they, they speak day to, and day uh, their message is proclaimed he's talking about the knowledge of God that comes through natural revelation if you open your eyes and look around you you'll see that there's design and order in the universe and you come to a couple of conclusions one there must be a God out there and uh, he's a God of power power uh, there is order, and meaning, and significance in the universe. There must be a personality behind it, and there's power behind it. If you think at all, you'd come to that conclusion. What he's saying is that even if Israelites have not heard the full-orbed gospel, they've heard enough to begin to move toward it. They have a modicum of truth. And when people respond to the truth that they have, that God will get them more and more. The problem is there's something wrong with the heart. They haven't even responded to the little bit of revelation that's been given to them. Haven't they heard? You bet your life they've heard. That's not the problem. They've heard. But something else is wrong. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. But again, that's not the point. Moses says, I'll make you envious by means of those who are not a nation. I'll make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Gentiles didn't understand it any better than the Jews did, but they believed it. I have this marvelous little computer that does all these incredible things, and I don't understand how that thing works. It just does it. I don't have to understand. I just turn it on in the morning and start typing away, and it does its thing. That's Paul's point. You don't have to know everything about the gospel. You don't have to understand it all. You don't have to know the order of divine decrees. You don't have to be able to put the whole thing together theologically. You'll grow into an understanding as you grow up in Christ. But but but, but the essential fact is just believing that Jesus is Lord, that He died on the cross for your sins, and that He rose, that the Father rose uh, raised Him from the dead for your justification. You don't have to understand. The Gentiles understood or didn't understand, and they they uh, believed. Then uh, Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Those are the Gentiles. I will reveal myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Do you know why people don't accept the gospel? It's not because it's not intellectually credible. It's not because the... They don't see that they need a Savior. The problem is just an old hard heart. We've all got one. God has to break up the hardness of our, of our heart. The problem is never, never intellectual. The problem is moral. People reject the gospel not because they, they don't see the truth. It's because they do not want to submit to God's way of, of righteousness. They want to live their own life. They want to do their own thing. They want to go their own way. They want to make up their own rules. I want to say again, the problem is never intellectual. It's moral. Jesus put it another way. He said, we love darkness rather than light. That's the problem. Our deeds are evil. We just have to come to the place that we recognize that we are indeed evil people. That's why Paul starts out where he does in Romans 3, or Romans 1, and he talks about the universality of sin, that we all are sinking deep in sin, and that we don't have a hope apart from the salvation that that our Lord offers. We have to give up our attempts to try to save ourselves and accept the one who came to, to save us. That's the gospel. Now, let me, let me ask you a question. How are they going to hear if we don't preach it? How are they going to hear? There ain't any other way we have to proclaim it. You, you have to spend your life for something in this world. You might as well spend it for something that's worthwhile. What is more worthwhile than telling people how they can know God and, and, and enable them to, enabling them to find, find eternal salvation Carolyn and I were talking, to you, uh, we took a little trip this weekend, we were talking, driving back, about how you motivate people, and Carolyn's comment was you just have to help them to get an eternal perspective. And she's absolutely right. The way to motivate people to serve within the body of Christ or to, or to witness is to help them to get an eternal perspective But what matters, that this life doesn't matter a great deal. I love to tie flies and make rods and fish and camp, and it's, it's fun, I love it, but it doesn't matter. What really matters eternally is what happens in the hearts and lives of people that that I'm ministering to. The same is true for all of us. All of us. When When I was at Berkeley, I had a prof who was the world's authority on the Hebrew infinitive absolute. Nobody in the world knew more than that man knew about the Hebrew infinitive absolute. And I remember sitting in one of his classes while he was expatiating at great length, On the infinity of absolute and thinking, who in the world cares? (laughs) What difference does it make? Absolutely none. But he's no different than than some of us who trivialize our, our lives away trying to make money or making a name for ourselves or saving up enough money to buy a condo at Sun Valley. And for goodness sake, who in the world cares? One of these days, it's all going to burn up. And there's nothing wrong with any of these, you know, it might be wrong with some of these things, but there's nothing wrong with with these things necessarily. The point is that if this is what we're living for, we are trivializing our life. We're dinking away at doing things that simply do not matter when God has given us the word of truth that we can... We can communicate. Anybody can befriend people and communicate the gospel. I'm going to close with, with one illustration. I have a friend who lives down at uh, Lake Tahoe. Two weeks ago, uh, while the, the high school kids were doing their play, I was down at Lake Tahoe. It's tough duty, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> and I was speaking uh, to a men's group down there. Forty-one men, included, including myself, that are all the product of one man's ministry. I was impressed. This guy went up to Lake Tahoe about five years ago, and uh, he was a he was very wealthy, lived in the Bay Area, made a great deal of money, retired early, isn't that much older than I am, and he moved up to Lake Tahoe, built a beautiful house on the North Shore, right on the water, bought a boat, and set out to spend the rest of his life fishing for Mackinac. And after about a week of fishing for Mackinac, he decided this was a waste. And he got involved in a Bible study with some other men up there, and they started studying the Word, and he really got turned on. And, and he started gathering some of the men in that community in a little group. They met for breakfast, four or five of them, and he started teaching them the Word. And he started sharing his faith with people on the, on, in Tahoe City and on the North Shore Man after man came to Christ. And some of their families came to Christ. The uh, ski coach at the University of Utah met the Lord as a result of this man's ministry. I got to meet him. friend of Terry Pape's, by the way, he, he told me to tell Terry. He used to race with Terry when they, when they skied. And and uh, he said, be sure and tell Terry I'm not the man I used to be. He's come to Christ as a result of this man's ministry. Who just very quietly and methodically has gone about befriending men. Up in that area, and and imparting truth to them, and one after another are coming to Christ and growing in that relationship. And I say, boy, what a way to retire! Most men I know retire and die. If they don't die physically, they die internally. They just shrivel up and die. Here's a man that has something to live for. So I want to leave you that with that question again: how, how how can they hear unless we preach it? And as Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of good news. Let's pray. Lord, we think of uh, the possibility of using our lives for something more worthwhile than personal pursuits. We know the emptiness and the loneliness that comes from living for ourselves. You are absolutely right. The more we try to find ourselves, the more we lose ourselves. The more we lose ourselves for your sake, the more of ourselves we find. Lord, we, we we want to to care about the people around us. Give us your love for those that we that we know. Help us to see them as you see them. Help us to see behind the facades and the and the faces that uh, men and women paint on to the real hunger and loneliness of their hearts, and help us to love them for your sake and impart to them the truth that you've imparted to us. Help us to pass it on. We know that, uh, that you're in this thing with us. You've called us into it, and you would never abandon us or forsake us. It's your ministry, and you've called us alongside to share in it with you. We thank you for that. We thank you for these, uh, these words of the apostles that, that put fiber into our souls and stiffen our backbones and, and give us courage. Lord, thank you for, for this time in, in your word, for the encouraging word. We thank you in Jesus' name.